Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. I'm excited today because my guest is not only a friend, but well known to many of you. He is Bob Thurman, renowned Buddhist and Sanskrit scholar, retired from Columbia University, where he was the J. Tsongkhapa Professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist Studies. He has quite an interesting background, having attended Phillips Exeter Academy, followed by Harvard University, where he received his BA in 1962, and then subsequently did graduate work receiving his PhD in Sanskrit studies. Interestingly, in 1961, he lost his eye while uh, fixing an automobile, and at that point he had been married for a few years, but subsequently decided to refocus his life, divorcing his wife, followed by traveling to Turkey, Iran, and India. During that time, his father had died, and he came back to the United States and met Geshe Wangal, a Kalmyk Buddhist monk from Mongolia, who became his first guru. He was subsequently ordained by the Dalai Lama as a Buddhist monk in 1965. And subsequently, they became very close friends. He returned, though, to the United States in 1967, at which time he renounced his monk status so that he could marry his beloved second wife, German-Swedish model and psychotherapist, Nina von Schlebrug, who was actually divorced from Timothy Leary. They have five children, one of which you may know is Uma Thurman, the actress. In 1986, Thurman created Tibet House with not only Nina, but also Richard Gere and Philip Glass at the request of the Dalai Lama. The goal of Tibet House is to preserve the culture and heritage of Tibet. In 1997, Thurman was named one of Time Magazine's 25 Most Influential Americans. In 2020, he was recipient of India's most prestigious prize, the Padma Shri Award for Literature and Education. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Bob, it's great to uh, have you with me. I know this is uh, our second uh, effort, uh, and I enjoyed yes. our first, although we got a little sidetracked on some other topics, all related to uh, Buddhism and Tibet, et cetera. But today we're going to focus on uh, compassion. And interestingly, yes. you were just telling me you were having a dream. Yes. So I woke up having a dream because I knew I would be talking to you and um, about compassion, and I knew we wanted to make it expeditious so as to not wear out our TED talk-oriented audience. <laughs> 18 minutes, but we're going longer than that, I know. And, and anyway, I'm, I'm not that happy with the way that the Dharma people teach about compassion. One thing that some of them kind of say, which, which I think is a mistake, is that compassion is not empathy. 
that some, some of the people make a big fuss about that. And um, I think what they want to say is it's not only empathy, but actually without empathy, the energy of compassion is nothing because compassion has to come from feeling the suffering of the victim that is not you, you know, compassion for another or compassion for yourself. You have to really admit to the f suffering that you feel. So, so that's the first thing that I think is very important. We are, we are short-selling compassion if we say it's not empathy, it's some other mysterious thing, because it requires empathy. That's the energy of compassion. Just like when you have compassion for yourself, like if I, I yesterday I was doing a cookout and uh, I touched the lid on the cookout and quickly removed my hand. And the energy for the speed of the removing my fingertip was the pain that I felt. So similarly, the energy of compassion is feeling the pain of the other being that you're compassionate to. And that's one thing. And the other thing is the role of, of, of happiness, joy, bliss, whatever you want to call different versions. That's very, very key. And um, so sort of the, the, the thing I wanted to say is this. Compassion, what I woke up thinking right out of the dream, or the, the Jim, Jim Doty, Mr. Compassion stands for <laughs> dream. And it is compassion requires love. Love requires happiness. Happiness requires bliss. Bliss requires wisdom. So that's a chain of four causal things which you can find in uh, Buddhist Abhidharma, for example, even in Theravada, where they don't make quite such a fuss about compassion because they're not into the Bodhisattva uh, opportunity. Um, they're not pressured with that opportunity. They, I'm not, it doesn't mean they're not compassionate, but it means they don't have the technical thing about it so focused on. And... Um, so, so that, that when you learn the four immeasurables, as they are called, apramanani, which are love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, and those four correspond in Theravada also uh, to the 16 or 17 levels of the heavens of pure form. And they're called pure form rather than desire-tainted form. Uh, because the beings in those things are not gendered. So their males and females are not looking for partners to go after each other. They have, their, they have a balance bodies. They're not born from wombs in that realm. Their bodies are balanced and the male-female elements are in a balance. And so they have a kind of natural heavenly bliss, you know. So, and those four immeasurables are the yogi's way of mapping onto those states in the Buddhist cosmology. I know that sounds complicated, but my main point is that in the, in the things needed to achieve immeasurable love, which is three levels, um, joy and bliss are part of them, as well as concentration. And, um, and, then, and then you hit, where you hit compassion is, you're loving beings, you know, you go in a measurable feeling of love. Like, for example, Matthew Ricard is very good at that, our famous compassion yogi, 
Matthew, everybody's happy man. <laughs> your regard. Uh, yes, the, and, the, happy, the happiest man on earth. That's right, that's right. And although I think the source of his happiness, I'm not sure, is being properly explained even by him to the West. And the reason is this, which is very funny. Self-compassion, which is a big, people make a big fuss about in the West because they, want, they don't want their clients who they're teaching mindfulness and compassion, they don't want them to run away for the what what really self compassion expresses itself as, which they which is done in Asia, and what is self compassion? Self compassion for Jim Doty being really compassionate with himself, or Bob Thurman being really compassionate for himself, we would both instantly retire from all of our burdens as lay people, earning a living, paying taxes, contributing to our pensions, taking care of our family if we have them. <laughs> etc. A lot, a lot of stress, or serving in the military if we're younger, completely drop out of all of that, and actually get free lunch for life, and and we don't have even need to bother bank accounts because everybody else's bank account is available to us because we are mendicants, meaning we travel to get free food from people who are happy to give it to us because we are more cool. And because we're not worrying about all these things that every lay person is completely worried about. Like in America today, oh, the election of 2024, ah, no. are they going to destroy Social Security, women's freedom of their body, the military, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, freedom of belief, freedom of speech, a little fascist government with the Trump orange orangutan dictator, or what? You know, we're all nervous that as lay people, monks, they're fine in Asia. And so self-love is dropping out of all needless worldly business that stresses us out and makes us unhappy. So that's Matthew's source of bliss, actually, his initial source of bliss. He's a monk. He's a good monk, has been for a long time. He's a vegetarian. He lives happily there. He gets donations from everybody. And he doesn't sweat all of the things like you have children and grandchildren and then they get addicted to this or they do that or whatever, you know. He doesn't sweat that. So self-love is expressed on simplifying your life and Buddha made it possible for people to simplify their lives right off by dropping out. But the way in the West, you can't say that to people because they think monks are going to go and hide in a cave somewhere and flagellate themselves for life and it's all misery, you know. Supposedly you be monk because you want misery, you know. And that's that's not the Buddhist mendicant. Buddhist mendicant is a happy camper with a lifelong free lunch. He's like Buckminster Fuller's dream guy who has a lifelong grant to just sit on by the riverside and look at the fish and meditate. So he's really happy. Okay, so anyway, that's the beginning. So love means you just feel, I want everyone to really be happy. I do really want, all I can think of is how they should be happy. Now, I wouldn't be wanting that if I didn't have happiness myself, because I wouldn't know that it's really great. And as they say, when you renounce all of your worldly business, you suddenly, the, 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 the pinched thing between the eyebrows, you know, is not the third eye, it's stress. You know, this, Mine, mine's right there. Yeah, you, well, you're kind of a happy guy, actually. But because you naturally are. But the point is, this pinch thing here, when you look at other people's faces, when you've dropped out and you don't care about a lot of things that everybody feels they have to care about, 
and you feel free and you feel loved because the people like to give you lunch. The reason is because they like those monks because the monks are not stressed. So then when somebody rushes up here, have some lunch, and I'll go cook some more over here, and i have the I got to go back to work and all this, and the monk is like, they don't have to go do anything. So they're getting this free lunch, and they say, well, why don't you cool out? Like, let's just let's, let's say a mantra here, like, calm down. And then people do calm down so that they loved their monks. In fact, so much so that they would be irritated with a monk if after they're giving him their best food, which they will do, if the monk says, thank you so much, they won't like that. Because then that monk is sort of giving them back something, and then they feel they have to go get do something else for them. So they, it like puts a stress on them. So they don't want them to, want to say thank you, they just want to give something. And so, so that's the thing. So, so <clears throat> to, to love, truly, you have to be happy yourself. As you know, I think, well, you're not, you and I are not women, and we're often on the other side of that. But I think women really know about men who come up to them and say, oh, dear, I love you so much. I couldn't live without you. I need you to be happy. And then, oh, my God, this, this guy, you know, maybe they'll fall for us for a while, but meanwhile, they have to provide us our happiness all the time. Whereas they are looking for the guy who's totally happy themselves, even without them, but wants them to be happy on top of it. And therefore, even doesn't even need them to be happy, but really wants them to be, because they are so beautiful and so on. So, so I'm saying we want to be, we want to feel happiness ourselves, then we automatically sense when others are miserable, and then we really want them to be happy. That's why for the first three levels of the four immeasurables, you just feel that love for all beings. And then what happens in the next three levels is you become aware that they are not as happy as you want them to be because you're loving them. Because love means wanting them to be happy. And then you realize they're not. So then, and by, by having, feeling them, by reaching toward them with love, you become empathetic of how they actually do feel. And when you do that, uh, you feel on the surface, there are all their surface problems. You, you empathize with them, and then you just can't bear them. And they always define compassion as the inability to bear others' suffering. Compassion for others is the inability to bear their suffering. How would you have an inability to bear their suffering if you weren't empathetic with them? Do you follow me? But again, to make it popular in the West, they don't want to tell people that. It's like when they teach mindfulness, the first thing you do after you focus on your breath is you get to the body, and then the first thing you do when you get to the body through focusing on the breath is focusing on the impurity of the body how it's filled with, your intestines are filled with caca and poop and urine and there's all weird flesh and blood as any doctor knows, Dr. Doty, about the anatomy of the human being is filled with, and, and, we, and we know when we die our body starts to rot right away, smell badly, you know. And so that's the first thing you do, but naturally mindfulness people are not teaching that because they're not teaching that. You have to be repulsed by your own body. So you therefore are not going to be into glamour and like fluffing yourself and whatever, and your vanity is diminished, and then you become more realistic about life. You're not supposed to dwell on the impurity, but you're supposed to look for some higher type of embodiment. Well, of let, let me uh, let yes. me ask you a question yes. then, because, <clears throat> as you well know, of course, uh, mindfulness, or some people call it mic mindfulness, is yes. a sort of a diluted. Uh, view of uh, yes. Buddhist teachings, I is this, uh, would you consider, is this acceptable or is this just another way to delude ourselves 
that we're no, okay. No, no, no. Actually, I, I'm being critical of the fact that they don't really follow the traditional mindfulness pattern, which goes to focus on unpleasantness initially, to sort of heighten the uh, facing the suffering nature of, of uh, unenlightened, self-centered life. So uh, although that's the case that they don't focus on that quite, they still do I, the diluted versions or diluted versions. I'm not, you know, contemptuous of them as some of the people against them are like, oh, what they are really abusing the Dharma, blah, blah, blah. I don't think so. Even they're like skipping over some aspect. They're still helping people become more self-aware and more self-focused um, and more conscientious even, which we could, it's a good old Western virtue to paralyze yourself with conscientiousness, but not to that degree. But my point is, I like even, for example, if the guys go to yoga because they want to pick up a date, to me that's fine that they're not actually just out there playing football and pounding on each other and preparing for the military which is what our sports are tend to be, you know, they tend to be military, you know, uh, things. And because of the violence of our culture and, um, you know, our genocides that we're sitting on top of without wanting to face them. So I like even the diluted, even if they're only going to find a date, the fact that they learn to lessen their arthritis, they learn to stretch their, um, their kinks in their body, they become more open to their own inner feelings. Uh, gradually, they will do that after having some dates and then being heartbroken by some beauty or something. I don't mind that. So I like the diluted things are also still good. But of course, not if that's all if they kind of kind of claim that's all there is. But I, I'm, I'm, I love all the diluted. I was younger, I was more rigid, rigid. And oh, they should they should just do it this way, that way. But now I'm not like that. I like the diluted things, anything that brings people to more focus. Anyway, let me finish my train just a little bit. Sure. So then you're back to that happiness where you feel happy. So you're actually loving other beings who want them to realize it's really nice to be happy. And then even in your own happiness, what is the source of that? It's where you go deeper into yourself and you find your sort of life energy and your, your health energy and your optimism and your hopefulness. So you find a kind of deep inner source of bliss that isn't so dependent on some success or getting a bonus or winning a winning your poker game or you know whatever, having some positive feedback from somebody. In other words, you begin to find that actually you're kind of made of all these micro beings in your microbiome and in your cells and everything that like to link to each other. So a human being is a complete magnificent uh, product of interconnectedness of, my, of micro beings. And so the, the interconnection and the, the you know, one, one microbiome thing likes another microbiome thing. So they like to live in our gut, <laughs> which you wouldn't think normally. So they wouldn't really enjoy that. But they seem to, the billion of them or whatever they are. So, which the Buddhists always said there, we were composed of 84,000, which is just a symbolic number of micro beings. So, and then because that's what, in the, if you go in the immeasurable, when you have that immeasurable compassion with the love, in other words, the love has become responsible by knowing what the beloved feels like and then can't bear them suffering. And then, then, then because you're doing immeasurable and you're thinking about, trying to think about everybody, then that could be unbearable. So then what you have, to, what you do is you go and you realize that although they ha it's like the good doctor 
who sees that there's a basic possibility for health and vitality in the being. So that's like they see the potential leverage point of the placebo effect, and they have a really good bedside manner, and they have a confidence they project to the patient, which as you as a doctor know, that's all important in healing, where the patient begins to feel, I can get there, you know, I can get away from whatever this terrible symptom is, because the doctor seems to feel that way and then knows what I should be doing to get there and gives me whatever treatment. And so that's where the immeasurable joy comes. The immeasurable joy doesn't come because you just dumped a person you feel compassion about and can't bear their suffering. It becomes because you see within the suffering, they have their own inner, inner awareness of the reality of bliss of the universe. You kind of find that. And then when you, when you find that, you, then, and you find that when you can find that in yourself. So that's why I said that the happiness depends, of course, on an inner bliss. So as the bottom of the chain, so that that's so and, and Matthew said that, you know, when he says when he sometimes is misunderstood by people, I think, as saying, no, don't be empathetic. That'll drain you and wear you out. What he means by that is that if you don't have that inner bliss and able to see the inner bliss in the other underneath the suffering, you can then bear being compassionate about the suffering that is to say that it's unbearable and therefore do everything you can. But what you add to the person, instead of being sucked into their suffering with them, is what you add is you bring, you bring that inner bliss of your own and kindle their inner bliss within themselves. So they suddenly don't see themselves as only their symptom, as only their misery. And so that's, why that, that, so that's my chain, is compassion depends on love, depends on happiness, and happiness depends on bliss. And now finally, where bliss comes from, where, we're where our finding of our own inner bliss comes from looking to try to see what we really are. And then when we do that, we realize we are a complete product of interconnectedness in a totally, fundamentally good universe. Because it can somehow, in the middle of crashing rocks, and supernova flames and black holes and asteroids obliterating dinosaurs or whatever it is, little skin of atmosphere and water and or some places can be shaped like that and we can have a joyous human life and we can be kind to others and we can have a great time. So somehow, and that was Buddha's discovery, of course, he said, that's nirvana, that's a clear light of the void, so that the supposed fearful, fearsome void of all these crashing horrible things, somehow the, the deeper energy within that is a, is a transparency of loving energy, which is, you know, which is what I love about it too, is His Holiness, our dear friend, your guru, my guru, His Holiness Dalai Lama, uh, he um, somehow in the midst of our craziness on this planet, Kali Yuga, wars, nuclear weapons, crazy petropaths, you know, petroleum psychopaths, burning more stuff to for no reason at all, except they're stuck on the, the habit of it. And, uh, and in the midst of that, he finds joy, and he encourages us, we can. And he's, he really... And, uh, and so we, we get that example and we try to do that too, I think.
right? So, <clears throat> so sometimes but people yes, talk. That's my, that's my chain today for you. I, uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, anything else now? What? Th this is the dream chain. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, people talk about sometimes the delusion of self. How how does that intertwine with what you were saying? Well, because it's the delusion of a false self is the reason. Because what we think is we we humans actually got to be human from in according to a Buddhist evolutionary view, a pre-Darwinian Darwin of Buddha, which is a Darwin that includes the human spirit and mind. But it's like Darwin in that it's empirical. It isn't just some omnipotent power does it, you know, like a, like a religions. So it's it's scientific like Darwin. But the way we got to be human is we decided life was not that dangerous and bad. So we were happy to be born without scales, without giant fangs, without spitting poison, without huge claws, without gorilla-like huge physique to wrestle down lions and so on, or elephant giant tusks and so on. So we decided we'd like to be a more soft being with moms and be helpless for years. And we would like to think. So we hid in our cave while we elaborated our brain etc. And we let, then we can then without the scales, we can caress and we can receive a massage and so on. <laughs> if we had heavy scales, it wouldn't really be good to have a massage <laughs> from a from a crocodile masseur. So so the point is, we got there, but we don't think that we because we're terrorized by human cultures, especially of the last 5000 years of patriarchy, of human cultures that world is very dangerous. And you need God, you need the high priest, you need you need a crazy God who's going to boss you around, but who somehow made it all and can save you, and somehow made you to be in this crazy world, but somehow can save you anyway. Dangerous world. Or we need a king to fight off the enemies, and other humans are bad too. And so we're, we th and we're separate from everything else, and it's very dangerous. So we need a lot of protection, and we need preemptively to be violent to others, which then between mutual and self-defeeling prophecies, we make each other dangerous to each other. And so cultures have been terrorizing us like that for thousands of years. And <clears throat> the occasional Sufi saint or Buddhist uh, enlightened being or Christian uh, St. Francis or Teresa of Avila or Meister Eckhart, they somehow realize they're one with everything and that everything is good. And then they still get stuck on this idea that it's a person. But when they really go into the heart of God, they, they know that that's in them. And that's what life is. That's the life force itself. It's not a person. It, you know, it's all persons, actually. If we really were working together, we would, it would be like that. That's, we are all God together, if you, in a sense. But that's a heresy, of course, for the paranoid ones, you know. So, so, so the, the false self is the self that believes that cultural fear and fear and anger kind of orientation of being separate from others and the others are dangerous. And so we have to be dangerous, more dangerous than them. And that's a false self. And it's a absolutizing our point of awareness, which is actually at its happiest when we're giving itself away, when we're doing generosity, when we're in love, biologically, when we melt in orgasm even, where we give, where we really, you know, the really ideal one where everyone gives oneself away to the, to the partner, you know, is the, is the real powerful one. And, and so we, we, but we dodge that point 
And we think, well, that's in some weird protected space, but uh, normally we have to, not at all. In fact, we, we would be abused if we were open to others, you know. And so, so we have to unlearn that false self, that's all. It's not, and it's also misunderstood in Buddhism a lot, by both Buddhists and non-Buddhists, that, that uh, selflessness means no self. But selflessness, like, like uh, Florence Nightingale was selfless, we would say, which just means unselfish. It doesn't mean she didn't exist and didn't have a self. So Buddha never said that you don't have a self. He said that the good self is the self that knows that they're selfless, meaning that they're not absolutely different from other things, and that ultimately, on the more high level, they're interconnected with everything. The high level is also not just a space where there's nobody, which is a very typical spiritual trap, you know, like you know, some, the nirvana is just being spacing out. You know, no, there there is a space out experience that's very valuable because it shows the unreality of this room that you're stuck in. You know, any particular one, and and this sort of rigid vision of that this just really is this way, differentiated in this way. It shows the sort of magicality, illusion, illusoriness of the of the the conventional perceptive world. But uh, but the ultimate one is we're all one and and all interconnected in all our differences. That's the, which is a little bit more difficult to get. Let, it seems uh, paradoxical to us. Let, but that's can really I, teaching. Can I ask you two questions? Sure, sure. Uh, so uh, the first one is, uh, we are all in many ways a product of our upbringing, which leads us to create baggage that we carry, which influences every action we take. And um, is the challenge overcome the baggage that we carry to understand the wisdom in the context of many of the things you were talking about? Mm -hmm. And the second, the second question is, what are your thoughts on psychedelics in the context of maybe a reset where you have greater insight, or is that mm -hmm. a dangerous path? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, well... For the, for the, the first question is related to the previous one, which means that when we, when we see through the false self, that is to say we realize we're not stuck in any fixated way with being parent with the paranoia of being in, a normal, in the normal culture, so-called normal culture, ordinary culture, where we are encouraged to feel helpless, frightened, weak, and endangered. So we live on fear and 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 preemptive hostility, uh, like a, a kind of paranoia. So so when we the more we get free of that by looking into ourselves and realizing that we have a deeper inner joy in life where we're very giving and because we are this marvelous human animal that we 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 have been every other much more kind of nasty animal we've been we've been predators we've been whatever and we can be like that as a human because we're so smart but we don't have to be and we are much more uh, because we can really see things from both sides you know and we can identify with others and we do you know like a mother identifies with that baby luckily because the baby is helpless until they're around 40 or 50 years old <laughs> Usually, and so luckily others will mother that being. So, so, um, so that's that one thing. And then, the the psychedelic thing is something that is incredibly valuable as a healing thing, and it was going places before it was massively popularized, 
and then provoked this huge intolerance by the militaristic, consumeristic, domineering type of culture that we're still stuck in. And, um, and so then there was a big backlash like Nixon, starting with Nixon, and uh, of uh, putting it back in the genie back in the box. But the 60s, those of you like you and me who are old enough, that was a tremendous release in the culture of, of, of energy. And some people couldn't handle it, and it was it's dangerous. So it's something that needs to be. Uh, they need to. We need to develop um, profession of curanderos, as they call it in the among the indigenous people. You know, healers, who are who can carry people through that journey because it's kind of like a mini death. It's like a spiritual death. It introduces to a person, and then they have to kind of let go, and then they do find their human openness and blissfulness tend to usually those who are very very paranoid and controlled will often completely freak out actually and so they have to be very carefully someone has to know how to judge who that is and uh, so they don't rush out and wreck the house or cars or attack some people or throw themselves out of a window or something so it, it's very so it's this very powerful thing but it is a very important educational thing and it's very necessary in various kinds of indigenous societies that actually are subsistence societies where they're living so close to nature where they have to be on on the alert in relation to animals and germs and different things and they can manage very well if they're not interfered with by industrial cultures that destroys them they tend to manage pretty okay and uh, because they have, most of them have some kind of plant shamanistic medicine like that that keeps them in balance with their nature, with their thing, and keep, because keeps them at a deeper level of experience of nature and even of life and death. They become less scared of death because they realize death is a transition that you experience and you arise from it, just like you're not scared to fall asleep because you know you're going to wake up. And in fact, you want to be in a good mood when you fall asleep, so you wake up being more cheery and happy and in a good place. So, so that's a more realistic way of life. You know, we, we got ourselves into, in our industrial, militarized, consumerized, uh, and planet-destroying culture that we have. So I think, therefore, in a way, I don't blame Tim, Leary, and Alpert, and those guys who released this thing from the, th the psychology department at Harvard and other places, and it, it blew a hole kind of in the Vietnam War time, you know, which was a continuing of the U.S. as conquering the world, you know, within big military, the Pentagon, you know, the, the Iron Cross, what Eisenhower, a general himself, called the Iron Cross, you know, that was in danger, could endanger the world if it fell into, imagine if America became a fascist state, we'd be much more dangerous than poor Putin, you know, with his dinky well, messed well, up. Well. <laughs> you know? we, so we, my, we, point is, my point is that that release was a huge one, and it brought it related to the civil rights thing, and it related to us becoming better about our racial intolerance, which may well come from our guilt. Actually, we don't want to face of our enslaving of those people and the genociding of the of the reds, our red brothers and our black brothers. We whiteies have treated, and even the yellow ones. We had them building the railroad and and living in opium dens, and um, which the British smuggled the opium to them actually. The British were the Sackler Company of the 19th century, addicting the Chinese as much as possible uh, to to dominate them, and um, by smuggling the opium into China, you know, and um, they were the Colombians of the 19th century, the British, you know. So so anyway, that this was released in the midst of us 
has turned us around and we now can follow Jefferson and the good people. All, all humans are created, not just all men, but all humans are created equal and have in the sense of opportunity and, and basic nature and awareness of softness and of uh, bliss of life. You know? That's our great opportunity as human beings is to discover that and share it with everyone. Right. Well, may, may, maybe on that note, since I know you have to run, Bob. Uh, <laughs> what? I said, I, I know you have to run. Wasn't it quarter after the hour? Oh, yeah. So that's true. Yes, I do. Yes. Yes. So uh, yeah, this is maybe, good. OK. Is that fun? Did, is yeah, that fun? Uh, Are you happy? That's my that is my Jim Doty uh, friendly dream. <laughs> my friendship with Jim Doty. Yes. And I think uh, it's really good. And the wisdom, again, the wisdom is not some highfalutin thing, you know, the so-called emptiness. You could actually translate emptiness as freedom. You know, George Bush said everybody hates our freedom. Well, people who are unfree resent someone who is free because the free person feels better. But then the free person is not a libertarian who doesn't want to have anybody, doesn't want to give anything to anybody else and wants to be like a trillionaire and let everybody else live in the dirt. A free person wants to make them happy and feel there and connected to them and be loving and generous. That's what a free person, automatically human, really wants to do. And you can translate it as openness, you know. So wisdom is just being realistic, ultimately. And then the more you know about reality, the happier you will be. Just like when you come to the street corner, if you know green light means go and red light means don't, you won't go and you won't get run over. And um, so that, so that should, can also be de kind of mystified and nobody wants to talk about it. It's so scary and emptiness and that. It's just being realistic and finding, finding your bliss, like old Joseph Campbell said, you know, following your bliss. And it's not like there's a horrible New Yorker cartoon that I hate where a guy is standing in front of a church in a suburb and he has a sign and he has a tin cup. And the sign said, you know, and he was begging from people. And he's saying, the sign says, I followed my bliss. <laughs> I think that's nasty. But in a way, he's like a big shoe. You know, he's like a mendicant, you know, who is, who is wanting others to help him find the bliss and follow the bliss. But our culture is no free lunch, you got to work. and eh. So they, they were making fun of Joseph Campbell's wonderful statement, you know, great professor Joseph Campbell, yes. follow your bliss. That's what the young people should do. And that way, they'll vote for the right people, they'll do the right things, they'll have the right family, the right lover, the right relationship, and they'll be happy, you know. And so will we, okay? Well, so that's I, the thing. Yes, I think I love, that ends our conversation. I love the, your but. podcast and your compassion thing. And um, we, we need compassion programs in every university in the country. And then we'll begin to have a better, a better culture, okay? And let's, have, well, let's do it and keep it up, okay? Thank you yes, so much, well. all of you. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Mm -hmm.